it looks like it's going to be another nice, cool, balmy day here in South Florida, right? Wow, has it been hot? I got in my car the other day, turned my car on, and the little temperature thing on my dash panel said 110 degrees in the car, and I felt it. But I'm glad you're here, and we're getting through the summer, and we expect that here, and we're still having a lot of fun this summer here around the bridge, and I hope you're having a great summer with your family. We're continuing our study this summer of Kids Stuff for Adults. I know we have some guests here today, so let me explain this little unusual title. Kids Stuff is for Adults, what we're doing is we're taking a lot of the stories that we teach our children in Sunday school and in junior church, but a lot of times we, we don't revisit as adults some of the famous Bible stories, some of the famous Bible characters, and we kind of just leave that for the kids. Well, once again this summer, we're taking those stories and we're revisiting them from an adult perspective, from an adult filter. And so we're having a great time doing it, but that's what the series is all about. We're going back and looking at some of the stuff we teach our children, but learning it again in an adult perspective. Last week, we talked about the Battle of Jericho, bringing down the walls. What an exciting biblical story that is. And we saw how after they had marched around the city of Jericho one time over the period of six days, one time each of those days, and then seven times around the city, in the end, they blew the horns and the walls came down and the Israelites were able to go up from every single direction of the city and overthrow the city. We learned that we have walls in our lives too. And if we're going to bring those walls down that present themselves in our lives, we've got to do it the same way. And that involves starting with sincere consecration. We have to live every day in a proper relationship with God so that when a wall, when our Jericho faces us, we're going to have confidence that God is going to be with us. Then we have to embrace some unorthodox strategy. Marching around that city and yelling and screaming to conquer that city didn't make any sense, but it was God's plan. And God has a plan for the way we can face our Jerichos. And they're not usually orthodox plans like we would think or someone might create for us, but we just got to follow the leaning of the Holy Spirit. We have to use unconventional weapons. We don't go to the phone. We go to the throne. We use prayer. We use the word of God. We follow the yielding of the Holy Spirit. And when we do all that, we're going to experience unprecedented victories. Those Jerichos, those walls of the trials and challenges of our life will come tumbling down also. Now today, I want to talk about the insidiousness of sin. Now, if you're a guest here at the bridge, let me tell you something about the bridge. We, we study God's word. We're people of the Bible. And here at the bridge, we don't, we don't skirt the tough ones. You know, the, the, this isn't a place where we just talk about all the happy things and all the pr promises of God that make us feel good. And, and that's the majority of the time here we do. But we're not afraid to take on those passages that challenge us. We're not afraid to take on those passages. We've got to dig a little deeper and sometimes even cause us to really stop and take pause and evaluate our lives. And where we're going to go with the story next is one of those passages. It's a hard passage. It's a difficult passage. It's a passage hard to process emotionally and especially sometimes hard to process spiritually. So let's pick up the story where we left off. Israel has had this tremendous victory. They've conquered this what seemingly was an impregnable city of Jericho. And God delivered it to them. They didn't lose one single soldier in that battle. Now we pick up the story in Joshua, an Old Testament book, chapter 7, verse 2. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They just conquered Jericho. 
Now, there's another important city that they have to also conquer in order to possess the promised land, and that's the city of Ai. It wasn't a Jericho, but it was still a pretty formidable city. So after this tremendous victory, Joshua sends the spies. He says, you go check out the city now. Check out Ai and come back and give us a report. So Joshua 7.3 says they returned to Joshua, and they said, not all the people are going to need up to go against Ai. This isn't, one of, this isn't a Jericho. This isn't near as powerful. Send two, 3,000 soldiers, and, and we're going to be able to handle this one. So, so don't worry about it, Joshua. We don't need all the people to go. We don't need the whole army to go up there because we can take them. There's only a few men up there. And so that's what they did. They took about 3,000 men, went up against Ai. But to their utter amazement, as Joshua 7, 4, and 5 says, they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. I mean, can you just picture, here are these soldiers going up there, and they're they're going up, and this is just a small city. This is nothing like Jericho that we just conquered. And they go up there expecting they're just going to annihilate this place with a couple few thousand soldiers. All of a sudden, they're routed. The soldiers of Ai kill 36 of them, and they chase them. Israel turns and runs. And at this experience, it goes on to say in verse 5, at this the hearts of the people melted and became like water. People, the hearts of people melted and became, what in the world happened? Joshua himself, Joshua 7, 6, tore his clothes, he ran his clothes. And he fell face down to the ground before the Ark of the Covenant, God's dwelling place. And so did the elders of the other tribes. They fell face down and said they sprinkled their hair with dust. It was a sign of humility and a sign of mourning. And they fell face down before the Ark of the Lord. They were absolutely traumatized by this battle. Now look what Joshua says to the Lord. Joshua 7, 7. Joshua said, ah, oh, sovereign Lord. Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? A very uncharacteristic response by Joshua. Remember, Joshua was one of the original 12 spies that that Moses sent into the land. He was only one of two that came back with a positive report saying, we can do this. He was only one of two of that generation that God allowed to enter into the promised land. He was the one that just had this amazing victory at Jericho. Now he says, God, why did you do this? Why did you bring us across the Jordan only to have us? I mean, isn't it just like us sometimes? God will give us this amazing victories in our life, victory after victory, and all of a sudden we'll come up against a new channel. We'll say, oh, God, why did you? That's where it's very uncharacteristic. Now, look what else Joshua says. He goes on to say in verse 9, the Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? I I don't know if you catch this, but I'm amazed at what he's saying to God. I mean, he's whining, he's complaining. We can understand he's he's distressed over this battle. But now he says, okay, God, so that's how it's going to go? You're going to get us wiped out? Okay, then, God, who's going to brag about you? Who's going to sing your praises? Who's going to tell the other people about you? Who's going to promote your great name after we're all killed? I mean, he is really coming on strong. I can see in him a man where the pressure is starting to get to him of leadership. And, and he's just really complaining before the Lord. Now, you know, once again, we come to the place where we've got to ask ourselves, what the heck happened? 
They beat Jericho, a city impregnable in, in most people's opinion. And they go up against this little city of Ai and they get routed. What happened? Well, as you read the story, you can certainly see that the Israelites got cocky. The spies came back. I said, this is a piece of cake, Joshua. Don't worry about this one. This is nothing like Jericho. We don't need to send the whole army. The people need to rest. They just went through this, this trying experience. They, they can just stay home. Just send a couple thousand. And he ends up sending 3,000 and they get routed. Joshua got cocky. There's nowhere in the passage that suggests that Joshua went and sought the Lord's guidance on this battle. He didn't pray to the Lord. He says, okay, here's what they are saying. God, what do you say? He came back and he said, ah, this is going to be a piece of cake. Don't worry about it. Joshua, Joshua, yeah, it sounds good. All right, we'll just send a few thousand soldiers up there. We'll take care of this and then we'll get on to the bigger stuff. He got cocky. But neither one of those elements are the real cause of this humiliating defeat at Ai. So, so what happened? What, what happened was the insidiousness of sin made its presence known. So here we find Joshua, he's flat on his face before the Ark of the Covenant. The elders, they're flat on their face. They're crying out to God, why did you let this? And Joshua's even getting very bold and saying, who now is going to talk about you? Who's going to spread your name around this land? Now look at God's response. Joshua chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Basically, God said, get up off the ground, Joshua, and start your whining. He goes on to say, Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things they have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. So that's why the Israelites cannot stand up against their enemies. That's why they turn their backs and run, because they have been made liable to destruction. And he goes on to say, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we got to flash back to the Battle of Jericho. we got to go back there. Just before that battle took place, and Joshua gathered the whole nation, remember, and he told them, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around the city once. Don't make any sounds. The Ark of the Covenant, we're going to follow the Ark of the Covenant. The priests will blow the horns. Now, when he was giving them the instructions on how this battle of Jericho was going to go down, look what he said. Joshua chapter 6, beginning verse 17. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. All right, so get that first. God says, everything in this city is devoted to the Lord. Nothing. He goes on to say, keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring your own destruction by taking any of them. Now look what he says. Otherwise... You will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. See, now that's just exactly what God told Joshua as he's face down before the Ark of the Covenant. He says, stand up, get on your feet. He said, the reason the people were defeated at Ai is because they made themselves liable for destruction. And how did God pre-warn them that this would happen? He said, when you go to Jericho and you fight that battle, if you take anything, 
Everything in that city is dedicated to the Lord. In fact, God said, you destroy everything. You burn the city to the ground. Only save the silver and the gold, and that is to go into the treasury of the temple. It's all devoted. In other words, God's saying, this one's all mine. Normally, when soldiers went in ancient times and even sometimes in modern times, soldiers get plunder. They'll take things from the battle. And a lot of times, they were allowed to do that. And even in Israel, other times God allows them to do that. But he said, not this time. Why? Because this victory was totally God's victory. They didn't do anything to win the victory. God brought those walls down. And so God said, this is all mine. All right, so back to Joshua chapter 7, verse 13. So God says, go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourself in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, that which is devoted is among you, O Israel. He said, that which I told you not to do, you did. And he said, you cannot stand against your enemies until you rectify this, until you remove it. So here's what he led Joshua to do. He said, Joshua, tomorrow morning, you bring all the people, all the tribes of Israel before me, and you bring the leaders, and you have them prayed before yourself. And God basically said, I'm going to reveal to you which tribe the sin has occurred in. And so that's what he did. He brings by all the tribes, and the tribe of Nathali passes by, and God doesn't bring him, and the tribe of Dan, and all of a sudden the tribe of Judah comes, and God says, okay, this is it. This is the tribe. This is where the sin is. And so in Joshua 7, 18, Joshua had his family come forward man by man from the tribe of Judah. And Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. So they go through this whole thing. All of a sudden, they're passing by. And, and, and when Achan, from the tribe of Judah, comes by Joshua, God says, that's the guy. And so Joshua says in, in Joshua 7, 19, he says, my son, give glory to the Lord and the God of Israel and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me. What did you do? Achan goes on to say in verse 20, 21, he says, it's true. He said, I have sinned against God. He said, here's what I did. Verse 21, Joshua 7, when I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold wearing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Achan says, I did it. I sinned against God. I sinned against the God of Israel. He said, during the battle, I went into this one house and everything was down and I saw this beautiful robe from Babylon. And I saw this silver and I saw this gold and I wanted them. I coveted them. And so I took them and I hid them and I brought them back and I buried them in my tent. So Joshua sends away his representatives to the tent of Achan. And they find everything exactly where Achan said it would be. So now Joshua's facing Achan again. In Joshua 7, beginning in verse 24, Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, daughter, cattle, donkey, sheep, his tent, and he took them all to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said to him, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord 
will bring trouble on you today. And then it says, then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. What did they do? They took Achan out. And they stoned him to death. Then he brought his wife and his daughters and his sons. And he stoned them to death. And they stoned the cattle. And they stoned the donkey. And they stoned the sheep. And they burned his tent. They totally eradicated any evidence that Achan ever existed. And they piled rocks on all of it. Now, this is one of those hard passages of Scripture, isn't it? And, and, and I know right now, a lot of us are asking a question, and we're thinking to ourselves, wasn't Joshua's response a little drastic? I, I, I mean, wasn't that a bit of, no pun intended, overkill? Why, why would he kill not only the guy who did it, but his entire family and all of his cattle and his, every, all his possessions? Well, from a human perspective and a human sense of justice, we might be tempted to think this was cruel. This was way above and beyond what should have happened in the justice system. So why did Joshua do that? Well, when Joshua originally confronted Achan, I think we see the reason. Back in Joshua 7.19, Joshua said to Achan, this is when he had just brought Achan before Joshua. And God had revealed that he was the one who had sinned. He said, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him praise. Now, see, here's what had happened. Although Achan took this robe and took this shekels of silver and this wedge of gold and hid it, the nation experienced their first terrible defeat in battle. Their first defeat in battle since they had left Egypt. 36 soldiers died. And the Israel army was routed. And who were they blaming that on? God. Joshua, even the leader of the people, who was probably the most godly of all the people in Israel, fell down on his face before the Ark of the Covenant and says, God, why did you do this? Why did you bring us over to Jordan? Why, you should have just left us on the other side of Jordan. We were doing okay over there. And God, now who's going to talk? I mean, they were blaming God for this. And not only that, but that defeat by this little puny town of Ai, routing this great, miraculous Israeli army, now gave confidence to the other people of the land that, well, they're not as tough as we thought they are. We can wipe them out. So although it seems like that sin of Achan was insignificant in and of itself, the consequences of that sin brought so much disgrace to the name of God it cost the lives of 36 soldiers. It put their families in mourning for the rest of their lives. And it emboldened the enemies of the nation of Israel. And God said, can't have that. See, that's the insidiousness of sin. 
Now, we've discussed in this series so far that we need to put ourselves in the story. How does this story relate to me? How does this story relate to you? Insidious. It means causing harm in a way that is gradual or not easily noticed. Another definition is harmful but enticing. Yet another definition that I include says like setting a trap. It reminded me of the words of Jesus' half-brother James in the New Testament letter that James wrote to, to Christians, to the early church. And in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, James says this. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. See, so in other words, when we're tempted to sin, no one should say, God, why are you tempting me? Why have you brought this temptation before me? God, why would you tempt me? God doesn't do that. God is incapable of doing that. And see, so many of the times when we're tempted to sin or when we sin, we, like the children of Israel, like Joshua, blame God. God, you let this happen. God, why did you allow me to be susceptible to this? And see, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, stop right now. Don't ever do that because that's never true. God is incapable of tempting people to do evil. Now, James goes on to enlighten us, though. And he says this in verse 14, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to what? To death. Achan just saw a beautiful robe. Beautiful robe of Babylon. I guess the fashion center of the day. And he probably thought, you know, I'll be a hero with my wife if I bring her back that robe. Man, that's a beautiful robe. I could just see it now, give her that robe. She'd go, oh, Achan, I love you so much. See? And he said, you know what? And we can use some money too. Because, I mean, times are tough and we're going to conquer the land and we're going to have, we need some money to be able to buy some stuff and set up a house and have a comfortable life for ourselves. See, even though he knew what God had said, what Joshua had warned the people about, his eye picked up on something and he coveted it. He wanted it. And then he began to think about that. Don't you know, initially, his thought would have been the same as probably our thought. He was like, are you out of your mind, Aiken? What are you thinking? You remember what Joshua said? I can't steal anything. But boy, he saw that robe and he started thinking about what he could do with all that stuff. He was dragged away from what the Lord, he was enticed. And ultimately, for whatever reason, he himself said, I coveted them. I wanted them. I wanted that stuff. And so he took it and he hid it in his possession. And he took it and hid it under his tent. And ultimately, that sin, when it was full-blown, when it was exposed for the horrible consequences that it brought upon Israel and upon the glory in the name of God Jehovah, it resulted in his own death. Everyone's tempted. When he, when she is 
drawn away by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full-blown, gives birth to death. My sin will destroy me. Certainly destroyed Achan, didn't it? Remember, we looked at this passage a couple weeks ago, and we really got excited about it because it's really indicative of our times. Paul writing to his preacher apprentice Timothy in a second letter that was circulated, that he wrote to Timothy that was circulated in the early church. And 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, But mark this down. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. We all said, yes, amen, that's the time we're living in. But he concludes that statement with having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. When we read a passage like that, we are so quick to just think of all the unsaved people, all the people without faith, all the people who pervert faith. We're talking about all the people who are atheists and agnostics and all the people who embrace cultural things that do not reflect the biblical worldview. But Paul was very precise to say, having a form of godliness. He's not talking about atheists. He's not talking about agnostics. He's addressing the behavior in the end times, in the last days, of people who claim to be godly, who have a form of godliness. They go to church, they sing the songs, they serve on the committees, they serve in the ministries, but they deny the power that should come to people who are really living a godly life. Galatians 5, 1 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Jesus died on the cross to set us free from sin. Isn't that right? And that's exactly what has happened. With that in mind, though, Paul says, same person who wrote Galatians, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 6, verse 1, 2, he says, so how do we respond to that? What shall we say then, Paul says? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? He says, so should we take the knowledge that through God's grace he has forgiven our sin and he'll not hold our sin against us and he's parted as far as the east is from the rest and he'll remember it no more. Paul says, so how do we respond to that mercy, that grace, that Christ has set us free from our own sin? He says, should we just keep on going sinning that, that, that we might enjoy that grace more and more and more? And he answers the question. He says, by no means. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But think about it. We often do exactly that. We're involved in some behavior that we know is wrong, that we know destructive. And in our day, we have the Holy Spirit living in us that convicts us of that and bells and alarms are going off and all that kind of stuff, and we know we shouldn't be doing what we're doing. And yet our response is, well, you know, I know I shouldn't do it, but I'm covered by the blood. It's okay, I'm still going to heaven. God won't keep me out of heaven. 
See, what we do is we presume on the grace of God. I've done it. Not proud to admit that, but I've done it. You've done it. What do we do? We rationalize our behavior. Paul said, Galatians 5.1, for it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But he goes on to say, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. He says, yes, it's true. Christ died to set us free from our sin, but our response should not be, yay, I'm going to heaven. I can do whatever I want to do and God won't hold it against me. God, he says, forbid that you should ever do that. He said, don't cause yourself to be re-enslaved by the very things that you ask Jesus Christ to forgive you of. How serious is our sin? Just how serious is it? Well, look what Jesus said about it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29, 30, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, he says, pluck it out and throw it away. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, did Jesus mean that literally? No, he's trying to emphasize how serious sin is. He says, that's how serious it is. He says, you might rationalize it. You might presume on the mercy of God. But to me, it is so serious and it can be so consequential to you that if you sin in your eye, your lust, the things you see that you want, you got to have like, like Achan did. He said, you ought to just pluck out your eye rather than fall to that temptation. He said, if it's things you want to do with your hands, you ought to cut that hand off. You ought to cut your leg off rather than go some of the places you're tempted to go. Because that's how serious the consequence of sin can be. In fact, John, one of the original disciples who wrote several of the New Testament manuscripts that we read today in one of his latter manuscripts. He has three short letters that were circulated among the church. First, second, and third John. That first letter, 1 John 5, 16 says, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. But look what he says. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. What's he mean there? There's a lot of different kind of sin, and it's all destructive. But some of it literally can take us to the point of death. Drug addictions, alcohol addictions, gluttony. There's all kinds of relational and behavioral sins that literally can end our lives prematurely. That's why John says, hey, if you see somebody and they're in one of those serious sins, you pray for them. You don't stop praying for them because possibly God will heal them if they're not already dead. But that's how serious sin is. Proverbs 29, 6 has this. An evil man is snared by his own sin. You know, reality is, is when we get in this pattern of sin, it kind of takes our, over our life. It takes over our thinking. It takes over our emotion. It takes over our relationships. It takes over our rationalizing. It takes over our integrity. It takes over our character. And to satisfy that with that our eye sees that we want so bad or, or that our body wants to experience so badly, 
We rationalize away. We don't, we don't take it seriously. And we just say, oh, I'm covered by the blood. I'm okay. I'm going to get there anyhow. See, but look what he says. But a righteous one can sing and be glad. When we choose, as Achan did, to yield to our own evil desires, it robs us of our joy, doesn't it? If we're a believer in Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sins and God has indwelled us with the Holy Spirit. We cannot continue to go on sinning without feeling the impact of that sin, spiritually, emotionally, physically. I don't know about you, but but I I remember times in my life when when I kind of got off track and it was painful physically. It seemed like the weight of the world was on me and my chest was constricted and, 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 and I was, my thoughts were obsessed and I would lay down on my bed at night and it was hard to fall asleep. And See, because that's what sin does. It lies to us. It says, oh, do this and you're going to be a better person. Oh, do this and it's going to feel so good. Oh, do this, it's going to be so much fun. Oh, do this and you're going to elevate yourself in the eyes of people around you. And it lies to you. And it lies to me. And when we yield to it, our relationship with God is broken because God says, I can't bless you until you destroy that which is evil in your life. My sin will destroy me. But what we really learn from this lesson today is not only will it destroy me, my sin will destroy others. It'll destroy others who I lead astray. See, because whenever I lead my life righteously or unrighteously, it's just not my life that's being impacted. It's the lives of people around me. Paul, in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians, says this in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9 and 10. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Remember Galatians 5.1? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But Paul goes on to say, but be careful about that. Be careful that in that exercise of that freedom, you do not become a stumbling block to someone who's weak. Now Paul uses, as an analogy, as he goes on this passage, food that is offered to idols. Because in that day, pagan society, people used to offer food to idols. And, of course, believers weren't supposed to eat that food that was offered to idols. And he says, you be careful. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? In other words, Paul says, now, now you have the freedom. There, there, there's nothing wrong with the food. There's no sin in the food, even though it's been offered to idols. And you could go eat the food. It's just food. You've been set free by the, Christ, by the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, but think about what you're doing. If you go into that pagan temple and you buy that food that has been offered to idol and someone else sees you, observes you do that, who is not as mature of a Christian, doesn't understand this whole freedom thing, or who is contemplating faith in Jesus Christ and then looks at what you do and says, well, they're they're no different. Jesus didn't make any difference in them because they do the same thing. They eat the same kind of food offered to idols as I do. He's saying, you've got to be careful there. Because they'll be emboldened and say, oh, I can do that. Well, if, if, 
if she can do that, and she's this really fine Christian woman, then I can do that. See, they'll take it further than what we would ever take it. 1 Corinthians 8, 12. When you sin against your brothers this way and wound their weak conscience, read it with me, you sin against Christ. Luke 17, 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come. Jesus said, you know what, sins, you're living in a sinful world. Things that cause sin are bound to come. There's all kinds of temptations. Satan's out there. But look what he says. But woe to that person through whom they come. He says one thing that, you know, sin's going to come. It's part of life. It's part of the world. But woe to the person through whom that sin comes. Through whom causes that person to sin, through whom leads a person into temptation, through whom tries to rationalize with someone else so that they are emboldened to rationalize that sin in their own life. Jesus goes on to say, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. See how serious Jesus takes it? He said, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, tie a millstone around your neck and jump into the ocean. It would be better for you. My sin will destroy others. Those I lead astray, but it also destroys those I love most. Numbers 14, 18. The the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Now, again, Scripture emphasizes that over and over again. It says God is patient. God is long-suffering. God God doesn't just knee-jerk react. God's not impulsive. In fact, look, he says he's slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin. God over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. But goes on to say, God's not a wimp, though. You better not presume on that. Because it says, yet he does not leave the guilty and punish. He punishes the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. An alcoholic father, a drug-addicted father, a pornography-addicted father. Children get raised up seeing that behavior. And they'll replicate that behavior. They'll embrace that behavior because of the love for the father. And see, it's not so much that God intently just curses a family, but God's saying that's the result of it. That's what's going to happen. And until someone in some generation breaks the sinful cycle, that sin can impact generations to come. At the same time, Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who, what? Love him and keep his commandments. My sin will destroy others. Those I may lead astray, and tragically, even the lives of those I love the most. Ecclesiastes 9.18 sums up everything we've talked about this morning. It says this, one sinner destroys much good. One sinner. It doesn't take a multitude of sinners. One sinner destroys much good. 
One father can wreck the lives of a lot of children. One grandfather can wreck the lot of lives of a lot of grandchildren. One mom can wreck the lives of a lot of kids. One mom can wreck the lives of a lot of grandchildren, nieces and nephews. One coworker can wreck the lives of a lot of other people on the job. One Sunday school teacher can remove God's blessing from the ministry. One pastor's sin can impact the lives of many. Just like the sin of one man, Achan, impacted the entire nation of Israel. Psalm 38.18, the psalmist says, I confess my sin. I am troubled by my sin. Let's bring it home. Is that true of me? Am I really troubled by my sin? Or have I rationalized and I just, I'm going to go on because it, it feels good, because I want it. How about you? Are you troubled by your sin? Or have you crossed that dangerous line of rationalizing it? Have you crossed that dangerous crossroad of, of saying, I know it's sin and I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm just getting so much out of it. I need it. I got to have it. I want it. The Holy Spirit's telling me not to do it anymore. See, am I troubled by my sin? Now, I know we don't set out to do that. Don't you know Achan didn't that day in that battle just say, you know, I'm going to just sin against God. I don't care what God has to say. I don't care what happens. I just we're going to have what I want to have. No. See, it was a gradual thing. He saw it. I'm sure he, I bet money he walked away, and then he came back to it. Then he thought, no, I can't do that. And he came back to it, see. And that's how we are. You're, you're a man of God. You're a woman of God. At least that's what you want to be. That's what I want to be. I'd love to tell you I'm successful 100% of the time, but I'm not just like you. We're all human beings. We don't get it right all the time. That's not what God expects. God knows we're not going to get it right all the time. Because we live in a world that is saturated with sin and temptation. But am I troubled by that? Do I understand that the sin of one can harm many? Am I cognizant of the way I'm living my life and how that is impacting other people, especially those I love the most dear? Maybe this story Maybe this message is resonating with you right now. It's not mad, Pastor. Were you thinking about me when you wrote this sermon? No, I was thinking about me. What should I do? Well, Scripture gives us some guidance. Psalm 119, 911. He says, how can a young man keep his way pure? David asked that. He says, how can we keep, how can we, how can we survive? How can we do that, God? And he says, by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray your commands. Look what David says. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I know in my personal life, I find my times of living 
my most successful times for Christ are directly linked to how much time I'm reading his word. Not studying it to teach you, but how much I'm reading it so that God can teach me. And David says, how can a, ask the question, how can a man keep his heart pure? How can we resist sin? And he, and he answers it right away. He says, you've got to hide the word in your heart. You've got to stay in the word. You've got to read the word. Not to just check off a box. You've got to read it, and you've got to pause and let the Holy Spirit speak back to you. Romans 6 12, 13, Paul says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Now, how do you do not, not do that? He says, don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. He said, you got to be careful what you look at. You have to be careful what you allow into your mind. You got to be careful what you're listening to. You got to be careful what you're doing with your hands. You got to be careful about where you're allowing your feet to take you. He says, you can't yield those things as instruments of sin. You've got to protect yourself by protecting what you allow to get inside of you. He says, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. I, I better watch what I let my eyes see. I better be careful about what I open my ears to. I better be careful about where I allow my feet to take me, what I do with my hands. See, I want to give those to God. And say, God, they're not mine. When I trust that Jesus Christ is my Savior, Scripture says I was bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. I am yours. 1 John 1, 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. You know, another important aspect of all this that's having Christian fellowship. Surrounding ourselves in relationships that promote righteousness and don't drag us back into sinfulness. Sometimes we gotta change our friends. We gotta change who we're hanging out with because they're the ones leading us in the way of sin. We say, well, I wanna lead them away from it. How's that working for you? Who's being more successful? See, that's why we have life groups. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we all serve in ministries together. That's why we do life together here at the bridge. Because when we do life together, we can be victorious over sin. It's insidious. It's not something we wake up and plan to do, but it's something gradually that just kind of takes over. Psalm 32, 1 through 6 says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose the sin, the sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit does is no deceit, who's not kidding about it, who's not rationalized about it, who's not hiding it. David says in this same passage, talking about his sin with Bathsheba, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my moaning and groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David said exactly what we said a minute ago. He said, well, I kept silent, and I just kept this to myself, and I just kept doing what I wanted to do. My, my strength was sapped. I had no strength left. Then he goes on to say, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I, will I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, here's our parting lesson. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray while you may be found. Let everyone who is godly pray while you may be found. Let's bow our heads.
tough lesson, tough story, tough application, but an important one. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. I, I, I don't want to be an agent of bringing somebody else down. I especially don't want to be an agent of bringing down those I love the most. I know you don't either. It's not your intent. But right now, what's your practice? Well, it says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you, Lord, while you may still be found. This tough lesson today, God brought to me, brought to you, so that we might examine where we're at right now in our life. And that we might not be like David and and hide that sin and not confess it before the Lord and, and then have to deal with all the emotional and spiritual and physical agony that comes with suppressing our sinfulness. But right now, let's confess that to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Your right relationship with Jesus Christ is as close as that prayer. You can change where you're at today. You can leave here. You can confess it to the Lord. You can get on your feet and leave this building to say, I'm not living that way any longer. It's your choice. And if God sees in your heart a tenderness towards him, I promise you, he will empower you to be victorious. Father, we just give it to you now. God, this hasn't been one of those happy, feel-good messages. But God, we need to take all of your word. We need to study it all. We need to apply it all to our lives. And God, although at this moment in time it might not feel good, if we confess this sin, we can actually feel good about life again. We can feel good about our relationship with you again. And we can actually be agents of healing and agents that that model your life to those that we love most in this life and so that we don't become stumbling blocks to even strangers who are watching our Christian life. Lord, we give it to you anew. Use it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.